Also, one of the nice things about being a renewable energy lawyer is everybody comes out ahead. As you work on transactions, everybody's working toward the same goal. It's not as if there's a winner and a loser. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition, hosted by Smart Energy Decisions founder, John Fiella. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, John digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hi, everyone. I'm John Fiella, and welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Today, we're joined by Keith Martin of Norton Rose Fulbright. Keith is a transactional lawyer based in D.C. that the prestigious Chambers Directory has called, and I quote, a preeminent authority on tax structures in the U.S., and they've given him its sole star rating among U.S. renewable energy lawyers. Keith worked for 146 companies last year on numerous transactions, and his firm did $145 billion in project financing and closed 331 transactions in the last three years. So Keith's been pretty busy. Keith also lobbies the U.S. Treasury and Congress on policy issues and has a tremendous amount of experience in the renewable energy space, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation with Keith today. Keith, welcome to Smart Energy Voices. Well, thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't we start, Keith, by having you tell us a little about yourself and the focus of your work today at Norton Rose Fulbright. I came off Capitol Hill. I worked for two Democratic senators, Scoop Jackson from Washington State. He was the chairman of the Energy Committee. And Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a former Harvard professor who became a senator and represented New York State. I've been working in this field since after the Arab oil embargo in the late 1970s. The group I headed, Norton Rose, has helped give birth to the independent power industry by litigating against utilities in 20 states to open markets after the Arab oil embargo and then taking a key case to the U.S. Supreme Court. We have been working in this field through two periods of of growth in renewables from 1978 through 1985. The U.S. Congress encouraged renewables through tax credits, but the runway was too short. The plane never took off. People lost interest. Then interest started to revive in the early 1990s, 1992 and on, when these tax credits were restored. We've had a very long runway. The plane is getting some air underneath it, and it's been a very heady period. So that's been my history is with this group. We we see a large share of the market. Oh, super. I was unaware of your background on Capitol Hill, so that's pretty interesting. Being from New York, Moynihan was obviously a very high-profile individual in our state. So let's jump right into the first topic, which is really kind of the impact that the new administration is going to have on renewable energy policies, given that it's roughly 60 days that the Biden-Harris administration is in power. There's been really high expectations and one could say almost euphoria in the renewable energy industry driven by the anticipated lift that federal policy regarding renewable energy may have. Is this euphoria justified or or is it just wishful thinking? I think it is justified. It feels a little like 2009 
when there was tremendous euphoria, when Obama took office, people worked extremely hard. Politics changed about 18 months later, though. I think there's an economic imperative that's driving renewables forward. And you see that in the choice of language. Even the big oil companies are now talking about the energy transition. So whether Biden helps or not, the economy is going to push renewables forward. Biden will help, though. He will help in two ways. One is there are a number of administrative actions he's already taking that will help. For example, releasing the first construction permit for an offshore wind project, announcing today that the government will be making a major push for offshore wind. Also, encouraging the SEC and bank bank regulators to have companies report on the, the effect of climate change on their business models. These sorts of things help. But also legislatively, the Biden is expected on Wednesday this week in Pittsburgh to unveil some parts of his clean energy and infrastructure plan. All eyes will be on that to see what he can put through Congress in the way of perhaps a standalone credit for storage or a direct pay alternative to tax credits and possibly just a longer period for people to claim tax credits on these renewable energy projects. There is this confluence of factors that with a supportive federal administration should certainly help accelerate things. You know, you mentioned the freestanding storage ITC, and I've got to jump to that because based on what I'm hearing in the marketplace, I think that one piece of legislation could have a tremendous impact on adoption of both storage and renewables. What are your thoughts on the impact that that one piece of legislation can have? Do you think it has the potential to be the most significant change, or do you think there's something else that might have even more impact? Well, I think it's the most likely tax provision to get through on the clean energy side. Yeah. But as you said, it's Biden is putting wind in the sails of a boat that's already moving forward. And so there'll be just a, an acceleration, which is what I think people need in order to, to deal with the climate change effects. We've had four years of inactivity, and I think the government now has to draw on all the tools available to it to try to help with climate change. On storage, the Energy Information Administration is projecting that 81% of new capacity additions this year will be solar, wind, and storage. Storage is 11% of that. That is a huge change in just the last two years. Storage was nowhere before that. Now you see every utility-scale solar project being bid with a battery. We just saw the first standalone storage projects financed on a merchant basis where they did not have a contract guaranteeing a revenue stream six of them in Texas in early February. So storage has come a long way quickly. The tax credit will help further. Yeah. Right behind this wave of large utility scale projects are hundreds of distributed energy CNI projects that would like to be able to include storage, but the economics really don't work right now. And the storage companies are focused on obviously these larger scale Project. So I, I think that freestanding storage ITC would also help kickstart those projects. Well, those projects already get the tax credit if, if the battery is added as part of a solar installation. Right. And I think it's interesting you say that. One utility scale solar CEO told us two or three years ago that storage was getting traction in markets where people don't do math. 
and that was principally <laughs> the, the rooftop market. But since then, it's, it's really taken hold. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. One other thing I want to mention that hasn't been as high profile, but I think is going to have an impact. Jigger Shah, who I know you know well and is a friend of Smart Energy Decisions, he was recently appointed as the new head of the Federal Energy Management Loan Program. And I'm curious as, as to your take on the impact that his appointment might have on the accelerated deployment of either loans and loan guarantees for renewable energy projects? Well, I think it was an inspired choice. The loan guarantee program has suffered at DOE, mainly because it, it is just such a tortured process to get a loan guarantee. And then the Republicans in Congress were shining a spotlight on anyone who took the loan guarantee. So people just, after a while, it became very hard for DOE to get many takers. Jigger has enormous energy. He'll bring a fresh look to it. At least the market will take a fresh look at it. And for that reason, I think it's it's an inspired choice. Excellent. Well, we look forward to him having a real impact. I don't think there's anyone <laughs> that has any more passion for increased deployment of renewable energy and innovative energy technologies than Jigger. Let's talk now, Keith, in a little more focused way about renewable energy and kind of where you think it's headed over the next 12 to 18 months. How do you think the policies of the new administration will impact renewable energy markets? I know you touched briefly on the offshore wind piece, but maybe elaborate on that and go into a little more detail. Well, I've been telling people we see three big inflection points this year in the market. Investors like inflection points because they they represent a change in direction and it's an opportunity to invest and earn money. The first inflection point is the possibility of a tax credit for standalone storage. We just discussed that and that would really be a game changer. Second is there is almost a stampede at the moment by companies with large carbon footprints toward investing in carbon capture. The federal government is offering a tax credit that is by 2026 will be $50 a metric ton for burying carbon underground. That is a huge amount. If you have a large factory, ethanol plant, fertilizer factory, chemical plant that emits 3 million tons of CO2 a year, you're talking 150 million a year in tax credits. And then the third inflection point is the possibility that this infrastructure bill will provide a longer runway still for some types of projects. Offshore wind is already a big winner as a result of a tax extenders bill at the end of the year that gave those projects a 30% investment tax credit. These are three to $6 billion projects. I, I know we're working on a dozen of them off the Atlantic coast, but there are close to three dozen under design. And then solar. If the solar industry has its way and gets an extension of the solar tax credit uh, really through the end of this decade. Anybody who is has put a big bet on solar will come out as a huge winner. Interesting. You know, of the, the second of the three inflection points that you mentioned, I'd like to get into a little bit. It's frankly the one I understand the least, and that's the whole carbon capture area. It doesn't seem to be very well developed. It's nascent. What's your sense for how this this new credit will allow accelerated deployment of carbon capture? And are the technologies and suppliers there 
with the capability to deploy those facilities or technology, I should Elon Musk announced a, a big prize. I think it's $100 million for anybody who can come up with a new technology. It's almost like the prize the British gave to geographers in the 18th century who could come up with a way to measure longitude while out at sea. There are 13 operating carbon capture projects in the United States. There are another more than 30 publicly announced. This tax credit, it's called the Section 45Q tax credit, is driving interest in this. We get calls every few days from natural gas-fired power plant owners, lignite, coal-fired power plant, fertilizer plant, ethanol, syngas, chemicals, refineries, you name it, looking for ways to, to tap into this. At the moment, these projects are stalled because the IRS still needs to fill in some details. It issued two sets of regulations, the last set in late December, but there's still unanswered questions. It's toying with the idea of posting some frequently asked questions to its website as a way of, of finally resolving some of these unanswered questions. I see this as a big growth area. Last week, two senators, Tina Smith from Minnesota and Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia introduced a bill to increase the tax credit from $50 a metric ton to 120 hmm. for direct air capture, which is a technology that is not well proven, where you just pull CO2 out of the air. A lot could happen here. This is potentially a big inflection point this year. It's quite interesting because up until this point, the way to decarbonize was really either to reduce consumption or convert to renewables. It sounds like this carbon capture technology is going to allow people to decarbonize while still using fossil fuels as a principal fuel source. Well, it's, it's important to the politics, too, of the infrastructure bill. Yeah. The, the Democrats have two remaining cards to play to get bills through the Senate with just a majority vote one this year and one next year. And even if they play those cards, they can't afford to lose a single senator. There are two Democrats, Joe Manchin and John Tester, who are from states with fossil fuels. There are also two, I guess, from New Mexico. And so they're going to have to have something as part of this mix. This is, this is it. That makes sense. Well, look, you're a deal person. So I'm curious, what, what's your take on what the most active sectors are in clean energy deal making today? Well, we chase trends as a group. We've always done this. We want to be the first movers in new areas. We use tools like podcasts and our Project Finance Newswire that goes to 66,000 people and webinars and so on to get the word out about these areas. So here's what we see. Most of the deal flow at the moment before I get to the new trends, is in the solar market, just in terms of deal volume. Utility-scale solar projects are numerous. The tax equity market, which accounts for about 35% of the capital to build a typical solar project, hit a record last year, 17 to 18 billion. The demand for tax equity far exceeds the supply. Wind projects also a lot onshore will remain very active. But the new new areas, well, actually one more existing one, is we see a lot of capital still coming into the U.S. from European, particularly Canadian buyers, some Koreans, some Japanese. They're looking for assets. And you have developers who are looking to recycle capital by selling off uh, pipelines of projects, particularly now with so much money sloshing around, the Fed is added to that, that there's a, a lot of M&A activity. People buying assets 
one of the key metrics for whether they will win a bid is the discount rate they use to to discount the future revenue that can be earned from earning the project. The lower the discount rate, the higher they'll pay. Discount rates have dropped below 6% for solar assets, below 7 for wind. Those are historically low. The new trends, offshore wind, the first large offshore wind project will go to market this year. A vineyard, 800 megawatts off Massachusetts, should be in the market in the next two months. It had been in the market in 2019 when the Trump administration pretty much put its construction permit on hold. So now with Biden in the driver's seat, it's back. it will be back in the market. There was the Ocean Wind Project, 1,100 megawatts. We helped with that. That closed on tax equity in December. That's off New Jersey. There are a series of other projects now lined up behind Vineyard that should get construction permits. Another area is storage, is going gangbusters. It's not just this one merchant portfolio that we saw, but all many different variations on the model. Another new area is charging infrastructure for electric vehicles. It's unclear yet what business model will prevail there, whether the utilities will put those that infrastructure into rate base as a way of growing or whether there'll be independent owners. That remains to be tested. Then green hydrogen, we're starting to get questions about that. It's a little too early yet. Green hydrogen is not economic compared to the natural gas it's trying to displace. We're seeing a number of biogas projects that are interested in selling into the California market to benefit from low-carbon fuel credits, and then the carbon capture. I think those are the, the new areas. Yeah, that was a great review because you kind of went from what's closest in to what's furthest out, and it's offshore wind, storage, EV charging, green hydrogen, Biogas was interesting here. We did a survey recently with our community as to the decarbonization tactics that they were looking at. And biogas is high on the radar for many that can deploy that. And then there's carbon capture. The hydrogen one is interesting is that I hear talk about hydrogen both as a fuel source to decarbonize thermal loads and also hear it as a potential storage mechanism. Do you have a point of view on which of the two uses will be dominant? Well, you have two competing narratives in the news media. One is that the oil and gas companies are very interested in hydrogen to provide a a longer market for petroleum because petroleum could be turned into not green hydrogen, but other forms, gray, blue. But then on the green hydrogen, the economics don't work yet. Gas, you need to bring the cost of hydrogen down to equivalent of less than $2 in an MCF for gas. And right now it's it's more like 5 to $10. So there is a Norwegian electrolyzer manufacturer who said at what used to be the CIRA conference, the ISH market conference, Energy Week in Houston, that they can make an electrolyzer that will produce hydrogen at $1.50 a kilogram, which is where it would need to be. And they think they can get there by 2025. That would be a good thing. We're getting some early feelers from people in, principally in our European offices, we're in 33 countries, for hydrogen offtake contracts. We're seeing a little, not as much activity yet in the U.S., but it will come. Interesting. Yeah, you mentioned the Sierra Week event. It's interesting. They Up until two years ago, you would think renewable energy wasn't even a thing because they were so focused on oil and gas. And this year, they made a fairly strong pivot 
to acknowledge it, which is a reflection of what goes back to something you said earlier, Keith, and that is the oil companies are by and large engaged in this transition and and they accepted the reality that they have to be a part of it. Senator Moynihan, for whom I worked, used to say that you win debates by by labeling things. And so, for instance, onshore wind was struggling with its tax credit because the opponents had labeled it big wind. But here, energy transition is a label that the renewables industry has used. And now even the oil companies are calling what they're doing energy transition. I think I think the war has been won. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you for that observation. Keith, we've talked about federal policy. We've talked about the renewable energy market. I, you know, I'd now like to talk about you. Tell us about why you're passionate about this space and the renewable energy sector. I, th- I think it's very important we do something about climate change. We can see the effects before us, and this is one way to help. That's my passion. Yeah, well, that sense of leaving the world a better place and having an impact on the future is it's one of the common threads that goes through the conversation of most guests, if not all guests on Smart Energy Voices. I should say also one of the nice things about being a renewable energy lawyer is everybody comes out ahead. As you work on transactions, everybody's working toward the same goal. It's not as if there's a winner and a loser. Yeah, there is this sense of participating in something that's greater than all of us. Who would you say has had the greatest influence on your career? In addition to that, is is, is there anybody that particularly has inspired you? Well, lots of people do. I have lots of heroes, and each one is for a different reason. Maybe it's a good writer or somebody who's especially gracious or wise, sagacious, so I, you know, I could reel off names, but many of them aren't well known. I just think it's nice to find people who have attributes that you'd like to learn from and, and emulate. And I'm always, even at this advanced age, I've, after doing this for 37 years at this firm, I always see new people I really admire and, and, and would like to learn from. Well, good for you. And I think that that passion for learning is something that keeps many of us who are on the back nine in our careers inspired and motivated. What would you say, Keith, is the biggest challenge of your career that that you had to face? I think it was making the move from Capitol Hill to a New York law firm. The New York firm I started with, Chadbourne and Park, merged into an old British firm, Norton Rose, where I am now. That firm goes back to 1794. So it's a very different life inside a big law firm, learning to master the tax side of these deals, the architecture of of the deals, it's all tax driven, is a long process. It took me at least 17 years before I got to a point where I felt comfortable. And and that was just through every night reading whatever happened that day in the field, whether it was an IRS ruling or a court decision or, or a new bill, and just forcing myself to get up the learning curve to a point where now I feel comfortable answering questions with, I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) but you have to, you have to work very hard to get there. Yeah. And it takes a certain amount of confidence to be, to get to the point where you can comfortably say, I don't know, right? but I'm sure you find the answers of all the things you've accomplished in your career, Keith, what are you most proud of? I'm most proud of working in a group with a group of people who have worked as a team to build a very large practice, law practice in this area, and 
early on, we went in a different direction than almost every other group. We decided that people contribute in different ways. And we want to recognize that it's not everybody has to be out being a big business generator. A book I read a number of years ago by the CEO of Herman Miller Furniture Company. And he used to tell a story about the Los Angeles Dodgers of the Don Drysdale and Sandy Koufax era. They were great pitchers. When Koufax pitched, the batters would psych themselves out. They could swear they'd see sparks coming across the plate. But you don't you don't have a great pitcher unless you have a great catcher, John Roseborough, or you have great shortstop, Maury Wills, who could get the ball coming off so quickly off the bat at sharp angles. So it takes all sorts of people to have a team. And I think we've done that very well in this group. We believe everything that we've achieved is a collective effort, and it's made for a nice place to work. Well, that's very special. Just as a follow-up to that, it sounded like you said at one point your group decided to go in a different direction from where others were going. Yes. Tell us a little more about that, kind of what was behind that. And When Chadbourne and Park was looking for a merger in 2016 and 17, we, we were approached by lots of firms to take our project finance group. And we discovered in those talks that almost everybody has a system where the people who bring in the work get the biggest rewards and everybody else is just work, viewed as a worker bee. And we've never, we've never done that. We've always turned in one, one figure to management and we said, this is a collective accomplishment. And we've always, instead of going after particular companies and, and just trying to do their work and increase the amount of work we do for them, We've tried to be the first mover, educate ourselves, be truly the masters of new areas, get the word out, put out a lot of paper for free, and then people will come. And that model has served us well. We think it serves the market better than trying to wring dollars out of particular companies. If they want to come to us, we like that. We want to give them value before with all the work we've done to master the area. That's very interesting to hear about because it wasn't the safe route, but it was a principled route. It was the road less traveled, and it, it's it's obviously served you very well. It's it's a lot of work. It's more work, but you feel better about yourself, I think, at the end of the day. Excellent. So what would be kind of your wildest dream or your biggest hope for what you'd like to see happen under the Biden-Harris administration for renewable energy? Well, I keep telling my group that imagine, we've been at this for a long time, but imagine if we were working in a market where people wanted more of the product. Demand for electricity has barely grown in this country. And, and most of the traction renewables has gotten is to, to displace retiring coal or nuclear power plants. I think what would be really great is if Biden can put more wind in the sails. As I said, the ship is already moving forward, driven by economic imperatives. But to, to get a real boost where we start moving forward even faster and helping with climate change would be the best thing that Biden can do. I think that will happen in this infrastructure bill. It's going to be a high wire act, whether it gets through Congress, another $3 trillion in spending may choke a lot of people on the Hill. <laughs> but I think the Democrats at the end of the day will pull together and they'll, they'll figure out a way to get this through. Well, I, I share your optimism, and I, I also w would bet that you're going to have your hands in the middle of a, a lot of the related activity. Keith, thank you so much for being with us today on Smart Energy Voices. Well, thanks for having me, John.
To our listeners, thanks for engaging with our content and being a part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and please tell your colleagues and peers about it. To learn about how you can become a part of our next Smart Energy Decisions event, visit our website, smartenergydecisions.com. We're excited about sharing conversations with leaders of the energy transition like Keith in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make smart energy decisions. Thanks and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community.